This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Ah! They're dogs and they're playing poker. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and happy new kids on the block day. Today, we welcome the guy who's got the right stuff, baby, the host of the new Branching Out podcast, former NFL star, Andrew Hawk Hawkins. And please don't go girl trading the wrong stock. We'll talk about some girls and boys making bad trading decisions in our headline segment. And we'll be hanging tough through the Haven Lifeline and my incredible trivia. And now, because they don't know the difference between new kids on the block and the Backstreet Boys, here come two guys who want it that way. Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. Doug's got to sing it. Doug's got to sing. And now, two guys who, they want it that way. Tell me why. I don't know. You get sued if you uh, do somebody else's work. Of course, nobody would ever think that you were singing New Kids on the Block. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to OG and the New Kids for the win. <laughs> I'm Joe Salci. Hi, Average Joe Money on Twitter. And this is the show oh boy. where OG thinks we're singing in the shower. That was a poor setup. That was poor form, friend. I caught you in that one, did I? Oh, totally, 100%. Just a look behind the curtain there. OG had no idea we were starting the show. (laughs) And I went, there it is. And record. There's the opening we've been looking for. Man, we got a great show today. Andrew Hawkins, the Hawk, is here. Former pro football player, former Toledo Rocket star. We're going to talk to him about... uh, It's a cool stadium. Yeah, we're going to talk about pro athletes and money and some of the lessons that he's learned with their video series and now their their new podcast. That's going to be exciting. Today's show, by the way, is brought to you by Experian. Thanks to Experian Boost for supporting Stacky Benjamins. Experian Boost can potentially help you establish or increase your access to credit. Boost your FICO score instantly for free. Boost is only available at Experian.com slash SB. So happy that Experian Boost is with us. And thanks to LinkedIn for supporting Stacking Benjamins. LinkedIn Jobs makes it easy to get matched with quality candidates who make the most sense for your role. Post a job today, linkedin.com slash SB, and you'll get $50 off your first job post. 50 bucks off just because you're smart enough to listen to us. LinkedIn.com slash SB, $50 off. Terms and conditions apply. 
We got a great show. Andrew Hawkins. Hawk is here. But first, we got some headlines. So let's get this party started. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show. Our stacking Benjamin's headlines. Our first headline, OG, a cautionary tale. Cautionary. We are nothing but helpful here at the Stacky Benjamin's basement. This is written by Michael Sheets. You know how Zoom just had an IPO? Initial public offering, not the internet. Not the internet public offering. (laughs) But if you're going to do a real initial public offering, you're going to get in on that action. You know how Zoom video communications? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we use it. That began publicly trading last Thursday. Listen to this piece. Shares for another company called Zoom are flying, but some are trading the wrong stock. Obviously. Shares of Zoom are in high demand on a Thursday morning, uh, ticker symbol Z-O-O-M. But there's one problem. It appears it was a case of mistaken identity. Zoom Technologies, ticker Zoom, is not the company Zoom Video Communications, ticker ZM, that began publicly trading Thursday on the NASDAQ. Rather, Zoom Technologies is a tiny Chinese wireless communications company that, quote, does not have significant operations according to its profile on Yahoo. But within two hours of trading, shares of Zoom, Z-O-O-M, surged more than 80% with trading volume that was quadruple the amount of shares that changed hands on the average day. The stock later returned most of those gains, ending the day up 10.2%. So here's what you do. Dang, I wish I would have thought that up. (laughs) (sighs) Do just some basic, basic homework. Before you get into an IPO. Well, the thing is, is that if you're buying it on, in your Schwab account or your E-Trade account, you, you're not getting it at the IPO. By the time it's already on Schwab, it's already secondary. The IPO is over. The IPO happens before you get the first tick mark on CNBC. When you see Zoom's up 7% and that, that's it. You, you've already missed the IPO. You're trading on the first day of trading, but you're not getting the IPO. The IPO is reserved for buku dinero, uppity ups at big brokerage companies who write these things and syndicate them. So you can get them sometimes, but you're not getting the IPO. And yeah. you're sure not getting the IPO price. No. So you, you might cash in on a little of the excitement, but really, when you think about yourself as an investor, do you want to? Is is your investment strategy that I'm going to tr- trade the excitement of a company that has... It is if you're trading Hamilton tickets. <laughs> that is... Yes. That's called a private placement, I think. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's called speculation. It's called guessing wrong. Yeah. Swing and a miss is what it's called. It reminds me that uh, there was a stock last year. Do you remember this? That changed their name to uh, Cannabis or something? It was like it, they had nothing to do with anything related to the cannabis business. They made freaking deadbolts or something, but it was like cannabis deadbolts. They just changed their name. And all of a sudden their stock just went skyrocketing because people were like, ah, got to get into the cannabis deal. We either did a headline or I did a money in the morning show talking about the huge number of companies that pivoted just to, uh, did you and I do that? We talked about the huge yeah. number of companies that pivoted just to get into the industry. I mean, they actually yeah. did change change what they were doing but they were you know selling no no this company just changed the name changed the name just straight up we changed it so great yeah so just looking up zoom technologies china 
no, this was not a strategic play on their part. Their play presently is to figure out how to get it to zero as fast as possible from a high water mark in 1996 of over a thousand. Today it's trading at two. I'm looking at just the last uh, just the last year, and it's interesting. This stock actually, this isn't a mistake people were making. Oh, gee, just just yesterday, it appears this stock at the end of March when Zoom Video said that they were going public, all of a sudden started trading higher. You see that? Look at that bump up at the end of March. Yeah, something's funky with this company here. It still trades for $2.70, way more than the uh, several cents it was trading for. Yeah, it's been close to zero for a long time. But it was uh, 20 years ago, it was trading at 1000 so hopefully you shorted it a long time ago. Oh my goodness, 2004 trading for $300 and mm-hmm. $320 a share. Pocket change to a guy like you. $320 a share trading for zero. Imagine people that rode that baby all the way down. Mm. And now they see it's trading for $2.70. Henrietta, we're back in the money. <laughs> we're taking all the kids to Sonic. Finally worth something. All right, let's get serious. Our second headline uh, comes to us from MarketWatch. This is written, it's an opinion piece written by Chanel Reynolds. This is a good, uh, good reminder, OG. She writes, sitting in the parking lot of a Marriott Express in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, swigging a drive through drink the size of my head and trying to map directions to my cousin's memorial service was not the location I imagined trying to have, quote, the talk with my brother and realizing again that I was living one accident or illness away from financial catastrophe. It turns out most of us are. An hour before our parents had gotten a call, my dad's brother was very ill. It was time. It was a four or five hour drive and it was suggested that they hurry. They headed south to St. Louis and we would go to the funeral home and share their condolences. Four years after my husband was killed in an accident, I'd mostly gotten my together, completed my will and power of attorney documents, created an emergency fund, got more life insurance, specified my end of life wishes, recorded important account and password information, etc., and encouraged my parents, friends, and the whole wide world to make it easier on everyone after they die too. But I hadn't really thought through what would happen before my parents died. If one or both got seriously ill, needed more help at home, or couldn't live at home anymore, who would they live with? How would my brother and I step in? We didn't have a plan, and I'd already learned the hard way that making big and often very hard decisions during a stressful and emotional situation, while also scrambling to figure out what's going on, adds more pain, suffering, and confusion to what's already a terrible or even traumatic time. This is the part that really caught me, OG. After my husband spent a week in the emergency room in intensive care before I had to remove him from life support, I know how dramatically having a few basic things complete in advance can make a very impossibly hard and painful time a little bit softer. She says, not knowing the password to my late husband's phone to reach some of his family members, no emergency savings. Let's just say there was a permanent red spot on my forehead after the hundreds of times I slapped myself. These, these what if scenarios that we think are going to come up at the end, never happen at the end and not knowing her husband's phone code to unlock his phone. Yeah. That basic. I mean, some of these, you look at how much life insurance is never claimed because of the fact that family members don't even know which insurance company it's through. 
Yeah, this is tough stuff. I mean, when it comes to, you know, end of life's things, we always think of, I'm 97 years old and I've got six months to figure it out. But sometimes that's not the case. And as sucky as it is to think about, you know, when you're 41, it's something that, I mean, you really have to go through and plan because the last thing that you want is to be stressing about something as simple as, is the mortgage payment paid tomorrow? Or how do I pay the mortgage payment? Because I don't know, because my spouse took care of it. Yeah. She does bring a little humor to this. She says, how much, quote, optional suffering can you remove from an otherwise awful situation? So there's suffering you're going to have no matter what, but there's some of it's this optional that you bring upon yourself. If you just sit down for a few minutes together and say, where are the keys? Like, where are, where are these things? Mm -hmm. And write, write a little note at the very least. Yeah. And uh, keeping track of all that stuff is super complicated. I mean, how many times do your passwords change for banks and investment accounts and, you know, the cell phone plan and all that sort of stuff that you just kind of take for granted. Uh, That's why I think something like a service like a LastPass or Dashlane or something like that is a really good tool because if you have that all synced, now you have to give away one password, you know, and and that's the, you know, the master one, so to speak. And it goes beyond this too. It's beyond just the kind of immediate needs. It's also the longer term things like talking about how you want other people to interact with your kids or, you know, your wishes. If uh, something happens to both of you, how do you, how do you solve the money issue? And, and, uh, it's just, it's a really stressful time. The last thing you want to be doing is trying to figure out how to do all this stuff on the fly. They talk about a couple more easy things to do. As an example, I hadn't thought about this. Obviously, we just moved into our new house, so I wouldn't do this yet. But if you have a, a trusted neighbor that you're close to, making an extra house key for somebody who's been maybe a neighbor that you've trusted for a long, long time, or updating your emergency contacts, some of these are super easy things. Organizing childcare backup for another family. If something happens to me or if something happens to you, who can step in and be the first person to take care of the kids? Well, you could use this stuff also for non-life-threatening things. Like what happens if you have a, a house fire or a tornado or, I mean, something as innocuous as I was supposed to be home today to pick up the kids from school. Like you mentioned childcare and Mrs. OG was supposed to be home today to pick up the kids from school and we both got stuck and we're not going to make it till 10 o'clock at night. Like thinking about that stuff from an airport 600 miles away is a lot more challenging than, than thinking about it in advance. So we had to do that. I'm sure you've done this for your practice. OG. we, we had to do this for our practice. It was a mentor of mine that put a bunch of us through this, this idea. And back when I was a financial planner, there was a hell of a lot more paper than there is now. And it was, how are we going to keep people's files safe if there's a tornado? What if this happens? What if, the, I mean, we went through many of these things that Chanel here is talking about, but as a financial advisor, and I remember the same thing, people are probably thinking if you're driving down the road, listening to this, I just remember thinking, I don't want to do this. I remember driving <laughs> to this place where we were having this, we were all going to do it together and get it done. And I remember driving there going, this is going to be the most boring day. Uh, and you know what? I got done. And it was so awesome. It was so awesome that we finally had a plan. Yeah. 
the SEC actually requires what's called a business continuity plan. So what happens if, you know, phones don't work for an extended period of time or what happens if your computers get stolen or what happens if you have a workplace problem that causes you not to be able to, you know, work in your office for an extended period? Like what's the, you have to spell out what that backup plan looks like. Now, thankfully, a lot of stuff is electronic these days, so it might be as complicated as going to the Apple store and getting another computer, you know, but, um, but still, you know, when's the time to plan for that stuff while the tornado's coming down and ripping your house apart? Or is it to sit down on a Tuesday afternoon in March and April or May or whatever and plan it out so you can pull it off the shelf? And while we're talking OG about important things to do for your financial future, and before we get to our takeaways, we should talk about your credit because you already know that the better your credit score, the easier it is to get the stuff you want or the less you have to pay. You know, the better your credit score, the easier it is to make financial transactions. I mean, you've seen all these pieces now that if you're making a big purchase and you have to use credit, your credit score influences everything. You end up paying a lot more money for those major rocks in your financial life. So the question is, why is it so hard to raise your score? Well, now it won't be thanks to Experian. They've launched Experian Boost, a brand new way to instantly increase your credit scores for free. A higher credit score can help you establish and get access to credit and preferred rates for the things that you want and need in life. Experience on a mission to help boost America's credit score, which will help millions of people across the country build and get better access to credit. People all across America has already raised their credit score with Experian Boost, and you should too. For the first time ever, paying your utility and cell phone bill can instantly improve your credit score. Experian Boost works by giving you credit for the bills that you're already paying through your bank account, like your water bill, your gas bill, your electric, your cable, your cell phone. And Experian Boost gives you credit for those bills. So if you're paying those on time, it's a game changer. It used to take months to see your credit score rise a point or two. With Boost, you can increase your credit score instantly. Boost is free to use and only available from Experian. It's the first time, OG, that a credit bureau's uh, letting customers submit utility and telecom payments. And I know that uh, Steve Stewart, who is the engineer of this year podcast, is on board with that. He's asked that quite. I remember before we had a podcast, Steve had a show called Money Plan SOS, and he used to talk about that, about why these things don't impact your credit score. And also, by the way, why those companies like utility companies look at things like your credit and why it impacts your credit in the first place. But it does. And so if you pay those bills on time, it's awesome. Here's the deal, though. You're in control only positive payments are going to be factored into your credit file. In rare situations where a person's score would go down from boosting, they can instantly disconnect it and their credit score would go back up. So if you're paying all your other stuff on top, but not paying your water bill, I don't think there's many people doing that, but maybe. Experian Boost can potentially help you establish or increase your access to credit. Boost your FICO score instantly for free. Boost is only available at Experian.com slash SB. That's E-X-P-E-R-I-A-N dot com slash SB. So I think our takeaways are have that Tuesday afternoon discussion ASAP. And then way, way, way more important, you're going to buy the first day of trading of a stock. Make sure you're trading that stock. The correct one. <laughs> 
Andrew Hawkins, Hawk, joins us. You might remember him as a wide receiver in the National Football League with the Cincinnati Bengals and the Cleveland Browns. He also played in the CFL, where he's part of two back-to-back Grey Cup championships. Or you might know him now from his new series from Uninterrupted called Branching Out. It's part of the Kneading Dough video series. By the way, lots of lots of people have talked about Kneading Dough. Of course, uh, the Gronk, Rob Gronkowski's been on Kneading Dough. So has Magic Johnson. We've seen a lot of uh, former and current athletes talking about cash and how they handle money. Well, now it's going to be a podcast and we're going to talk to the host of that show, Andrew Hawkins. Hawk, coming down to the basement. And coming down the stairs to the basement, the man who's the host of Branching Out with Andrew Hawkins. Good friend, Hawk. How are you, man? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Well, I'm great now that you're here. This is a cool series. How did you get involved? Oh, uh, you know, I, I'm over at Uninterrupted. I worked there in business development. Uh, I started there as an intern while I was playing in the NFL. And, you know, we're always concepting new ways to showcase athletes as being more than an athlete and kind of giving a, a better picture into who they are as people. And this is one of the ideas for a guy. Uh, when I was playing, I would look up to athletes who left their sport and went on a huge success, whether in business and acting or some other industry that you don't typically tie to sports. And I was like, yo, it'd be really cool to have a show where we got to sit down and talk with those people. Cause I feel like not only athletes could relate other people who feel like they are in their nine to five or they have other passions that they want to explore they could also benefit from hearing those transition stories. So that's where it started. Chase got behind it in a really, really big way. And here we are. Yeah. You do these live from Chase branches. Yep. Yep. That's why it's called branching out. Also I'm Hawk. So there's so much synergy there that it it made total sense. (laughs) Well, let's, uh, I want to draw in a few of your interviews and talk about your career as well. And you growing up playing sports. I know you had a couple older siblings, did you think you were going to end up being a pro football player? That was my goal. I didn't know if I would make it happen. I'm, you know, I'm only five seven, so people told me my whole life that I that it was far fetched. And you know, there were plenty of points in my career, even up until like playing in my first game. On one hand, I can count the amount of people that I actually thought I would make it, and myself included. I, my goal was to play one game, not because I thought that I would have a great NFL career. I wanted to be on the NFL roster for one game, so I can tell everybody else I told you so. And then use that little nugget on a resume, hopefully to go get a job working in business somewhere or working in somebody's front office. So, you know, I love to say I always believed that it would turn out to be the career it was, but I didn't. But it also helped inform my mindset while I was playing, which was, you know what, this is an opportunity and I need to maximize it. You used that then as a carrot. You used five seven as a carrot, if I'm hearing you right, to work harder. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And honestly, it, it kind of informed who I was as a player. If you listen to other people, people will always look at you and say what's bad about you, what's wrong with you. Very rare will they point out all the great things in you. So a lot of times we kind of take on that same perspective. But it wasn't until I kind of leaned into that and I'm like, you know what? I am 5'7". And even as a player, I'm like, that means I have a lower center of gravity. That means I'm quicker. That means I'm fast. That means I can move different. So it changed the way that I played. And then I also used it as an opportunity. Like, hey, I'm going to work harder than everybody else. I'm going to make sure that when they use my scouting report, the only thing on the negatives says that I am 5'7", which is something I can't control. 
And by taking on that mindset, it it created incredible opportunities. And again, the reason why I'm sitting here with you today. You're talking to a lot of people who all of a sudden have a lot of what we call sudden money. You know, they have very backgrounds. In fact, I want to play a clip from Branching Out. This is you interviewing uh, Chrome Butler, of course, the Dallas Mavericks former star. What ended up happening to you going forward? You started selling drugs at an early age. I was intrigued and fascinated, you know, by the things that you've seen, you know, whether it was the Cadillac uh-huh. with the rims on it, whether it was the jewelry, whether it was, you know, having multiple women surrounding you because, you know, I I wasn't on the cute side and nothing like that. So <laughs> I, I knew I needed to have to make some money to, you know, that be the care to draw people in. And I wanted that type of attention, you know attention. what I mean? So I started hustling, you know, um, at the age of pretty much about 11, 12 years old, I was doing runs. That's very different than a paper route. I was a paper boy, and I can attest that there was no money in that. The time wasn't worth the money. I would make 100 bucks after a month of work, getting up every day at 4 a.m. 1,200 houses. 1,200 houses, getting chased by skunks. So, okay, so you're 11 years old. And it's you're, like- you're, his first job is dealing. Your first job was a paper route? <laughs> yeah, I, was a, I did a paper route, man. I'm like, okay, what can I do? that I could still work within the confines of having to go to school, having to go to practice and all that. And Paperboy was it. I was, what, in ninth grade, I believe. And it was a lot of work. And I didn't realize till later on, I'm like, that was way more work than the money provided. But again, it was it just played in, into my personality. Like, if there was an opportunity to advance myself, whether monetarily, whether opportunity, whether to learn, I was going to take it, man. And, and you know, it was a good experience and something I draw to even to this day. Obviously, later in your career, you had contracts that were multi-million dollar contracts. A lot of people I know that are professional athletes didn't grow up with the tools to be able to know all of a sudden I've got all this money. You've interviewed yeah. a lot of these people. How does that change your life? Did you feel like when you were in the NFL, there was this pressure to spend money to look like you were a baller or whatever yeah. it was? Or was it a saving mentality around you? I think that peer pressure is real, man. And I don't care what setting you're in. It's tough to look at things differently than the people that you're around, right? These are the the athletes. We have the same job. A lot of times, and it's like, yo, we're with each other the majority of the day. So you're going to try to impress the people that you're around the most. I can remember one story. When I first got to the Bengals, I did have a little different sense of when I actually, it came to fruition because I never thought that I would get it. And I, I did cherish uh, making that kind of money a lot. But even then, I was in the locker room with the Bengals where guys had Ferraris, guys had Audi A8s, sports cars, Bentleys, Maseratis, Rolls Royces, Lamborghinis, you name it, every kind of car. Um, and I would kind of marvel at it. So I was like, here I am driving my college car still. It's 2011. I'm driving a 2005 Chevy Impala with a big dent on the back to work every day. And I'm like, you know what? It's time. I- I've earned it. It's my first year in the league. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to buy a car. So I research all these cars because that's how I am with decision making. I finally find the car I want. I think it was like an Audi A6. Nothing too crazy, but I'm like, I just want to make sure that I'm in the conversation. People aren't laughing at me. So I'm in like looking on Auto Trader one day, doing all this research. I'm sitting in the parking lot of the facility looking up the car, looking the specs up, looking for other dealerships where the car I want. I was going to buy it used, slightly used. And in doing that, the owner, Mike Brown of the Cincinnati Bengals, pulls up right beside me. He is in the same exact car that I am, a 2005 Chevy Impala, except mine has a CD player and his doesn't. 
it was like one of those moments for me that I'm like, okay, here's the richest guy probably in the state of Ohio who is driving the same car as me. If he's driving that car, I can last. Put my phone down. I didn't buy a new car for another four or five years after that and just kept driving my college car because in my mind, I'm like, you can't keep up with the Joneses, right? That's not why we do this. That's not what this is for. And there's little moments like that along the way that kind of informed my thought process, not just around money, but decision making and, and what I ultimately wanted out of the opportunity. That's an amazing story. I want to go back a little bit in your career, back to college, because something I often wonder about is, is this. You're a college athlete. You're in the MAC conference, very competitive conference. I grew up with uh, Western Michigan University in my backyard when I was a kid. So, so we played Broncos, played directly against you guys quite a bit. Did you really have time to do much studying? I mean, I know you went on and got an advanced degree, I believe, from Columbia. Feel free to fact check yep. me if that's not right. But did you have much yep. time to study as a college athlete? You know what? I, I, to be honest, you didn't, man, especially for people who are Here's the thing about playing Division One football. I don't care if you're at the Toledo's or Western Michigan's or you're at the Ohio State's and Alabama. Everyone thinks they can play in the NFL, and I was no different. Even being a 5'7 receiver with not big stats on a small Division One football team, I was putting a lot of work in, and most guys did. And it's honestly a tool that a lot of coaches use. Like, they dangle that in front of you to get the most out of you. But there was travel, there was winter conditioning, waking up at 5.30 in the morning, a week after the season ends for two months, right before. After that, there is spring ball and spring practice. There is summer workouts. And it is literally four to five years of all year round football. You don't even get to make your schedule for your classes until you get your football schedule. You have to schedule your classes around football. So, no, there wasn't as much time to really dig in. Later in my career, when I came to the realization that, you know what, man, NFL might not be in the cards. I began to take it a lot more seriously, so serious that I would leave practices and, and go right to the library. And obviously, once my career ended and I was coaching, I took it even more seriously because I had extra year left. And I, my GPA jumped to like a 3.9 wow. because I was spending sun up and sun down studying, realizing, OK, it's time to get ready for the real world. And it had it not been for those three, four semesters of time where I really started to be being serious about it, the other opportunities uh, to get an advanced degree or graduate with a, a better GPA might not have been there. But when you're so focused on football, it's, it's tough to have that sense of mind. But these colleges, Hawk, they make so much money on these student athletes. I mean, they've really become big money programs. Do you mm. personally think that college athletes should be paid? Um, I do think they should be paid. And maybe it's not a straight up, you know, hey, you play football, here's cash. There are ways to do it and, and bridge that, right? It could be it, put, it puts into a trust fund that you get upon graduation, something that's still pushes them to finishing their education, doesn't make them fully a professional football player. But when it's all said and done, that you have something to show my time that you had to put in just to even be there and not really get the opportunity to maximize what it looks like as a student. Not every athlete is going to want to try to get a 4.0. I'm not being unrealistic in that sense. But to be honest, most guys and most humans don't have the capacity to maintain such a high GPA while also going through the rigors of being a, a college athlete that I just spoke about. Well, that's what I feel like, Hawk. These transitions that you talk about so eloquently on your show, it's so difficult for a lot of these athletes to transition because their whole time in college, when they didn't have time to study, they don't have the tools to make the change. Right. And that, that's what it comes down to. We all, we all only have 24 hours in a day. So if I am devoting most of my time to computer science, 
I'm probably not going to be a very good basketball player, yeah. right? And vice versa. If you're devoting all of your time to basketball or football, you're not having the time to study or even learn other trades that will be beneficial to you later on because my shuttle time, which was extremely fast, and I say to myself, does not help me when I'm applying to work <laughs> at a business school or any or any industry in the world. Like nobody cares how fast I ran the shuttle in, but I put so much time and energy into that. You mentioned that you thought that the NFL might not be a possibility. You didn't get drafted. Did you expect then when the NFL draft came around that you weren't going to get drafted? Did you go into that day not not thinking that was going to happen? Yeah, I knew I wasn't going to get drafted. I honestly knew it was a rare possibility that I would even get signed as an undrafted guy, which I did it my year out. So my story was essentially, you know, I did everything I could to try to put myself in that position. I didn't get signed, didn't get drafted, tried out for arena teams, Canadian Football League. Nothing happened. And I went back to school and was coaching. I went and actually interned in the front office of the Detroit Lions. And as fate would have it, a year later, I got on a reality show called Fourth and Long on Spike TV, where they took 12 guys off the street and gave them the opportunity to be a Dallas Cowboy. And I got to showcase my skills there. I didn't win. I should have. But I was the runner up. But that turned into a Canadian Football League contract. And then I played there for two years and then finally got my opportunity in the NFL. So I knew on draft day that I wasn't going to get drafted. And I was trying to parallel path between still staying active on the football side, but then also not wanting to be in a situation where I had nothing. So I was still trying to take steps and strides to figuring out what my career would look like beyond the playing surface. How did you create these other opportunities? Because between the, the, the front office job with the lions, by the way, I'm in motor city. We'd love to have you back. We need, we need that front office help, man. I'm just telling you. I don't know because the year I, I interned, it was 2008 and you guys went 0 and 16. So <laughs> I don't know if you want me back. <laughs> they had, well, that was the perfect season. Remember that? Remember that whole thing? True. Yeah. Yeah. But all of these things between Michael Irvin show, between the work you've done with ESPN on Snapchat, uh, the, um, uh, this project, like, how did you, how do you make all these things happen? Is it you reaching out to people? Is it making the connections? Like, I think a lot of this transition you talk about, we can see in your life. Uh, yeah. did you put a team of people together? How does that work? Yeah, I, th I think you have to, uh, put a team together eventually, but to break it down to just the, the nuts and bolts of it is being told my whole life what I couldn't do. I got immune to hearing no. Right. So when someone tells me I can't do something, it literally has zero effect on me to the point where I don't even ask people what they think about my situation. I just go off of what I actually feel, what I actually believe. And I feel like I'm a pretty self-aware person. But in learning to not care about hearing no or hearing or being rejected because my life was so full of it and it never affected me, that means I had the courage to ask for literally anything. I will email anybody. I will send anybody a letter. I will cold call anybody. And 99% of the opportunities I have, that's where it comes from. So doing that creates the opportunities. It's just literally a matter of building the courage to ask for it and having the skills to deliver on whatever you're asking for. When you went from the Bengals and moved over to the Browns, and according to, you know, the site of all facts on the internet, Wikipedia, you signed a four-year, $13.6 million contract, obviously not a guaranteed dollars because it's NFL, but includes a, a $3.8 million signing bonus. That type of negotiation, 
What type of people do you have in your corner when you're making that type of a negotiation? Did you have an agent? Did you have a financial advisor that you're working with? Tell me about that transition. Yeah, I had a financial advisor. I had an agent. And even in that deal, I think I made 80% of the contract within the first 16 months of the deal, which meant like I knew that if I lasted the first 16 months, my life was changed forever. And that was like by design with me and my agent. I try to put people around me that are like-minded, understand everything that I've gone through, understand the work ethic I put in, because I feel like when people understand what I put into it, I need you to match that. I don't need you to uh, reinvent the wheel. I don't need you to do things that are outside of the realm of what I'm putting in. I just need you to match my intensity. My agent understood that he was with me ever since I was on the couch, you know, writing those emails and sending off audition tapes to reality shows. So we understood that there was a very small window to capitalize in the way that we did. And it was a far away from the times when I was living on a couch and he made sure that he worked having been a part of that process to make sure that my life would have was changed forever. And again, I just need people that are willing to put the work in. I'll put us in position with my talent or, you know, I'm going to wake up early. I need you to wake up early with me. I'm going to be staying late. I need you to stay late with me. You can make mistakes, but those are two things that are non-negotiable. I need you to match my intensity of the work that I'm putting in. I think that's powerful. I mean, whether you're somebody working a nine to five or you're somebody who's a professional uh, sports star, uh, somebody doing whatever, having these people in your corner, I think, and making sure that they're intense and with you every step of the way, I think that's transformative. It's not just about you. I think that's that's most people. Yeah, you want to match. I, I, we just got to put it in the same and it, it could be relative. So, you know, if I have a million dollars and I'm in, investing 600000 and you have $100, I need $60 out of you. Like you don't have to match my money, but just what this means to me, I need it to mean to you. I want to go back and listen to another clip from the new show that we're talking about branching out with Hawk. This is again, this is later on in your discussion with Corone Butler. And this is the time when he, uh, just to give people an idea, he was in Washington. Well, actually, you know what? We'll just let people hear it. All right. So from there, you get traded again. You end up in Washington. Yeah. Now now you become the star that you've been waiting to in the NBA. You become an all-star. You are a household name. You kind of help build the foundation here in Washington. And then they have a fire sale, which they send everybody off again. Here you are bouncing around. And this is after quite a, quite a while in the league. But nonetheless, time is going by. Was, at, was it at this moment that you started thinking about your transition away from basketball? I never thought that I'd get traded from Washington. And once I got that, that lucrative deal where, you know, I signed a little under $50 million, we had set up shop in Virginia, and I'm like, okay, cool, I'm, I'm here. Like, I know I'm here. Mm-hmm. And that's when I started, like, kind of going out a little bit, you know, um, back in, like, 2006, six seven. I started being able to see a little more because I, like, I, I've saved so much. And they were just like, all right, you got, you know, once you get like 15 million put up, should never have to work again. You live off your interest, you IRA, your 401k. I was like, all right, cool, cool, cool. So that's the number, 15. I got to get to 15. Uh-huh. Once I got to that number, that's when I started like, okay, I can live a little bit. I can right. have fun. I can enjoy the city. It wasn't until I got the phone call when they, what you touched on, when they did the fire sale, Miss Poland had called and she had said, and I told the story last night on television. Antoine, you uh, you guys get recycled all the time, and it's been a trade. You out of here. I was like, well, this Quran, 
first of all. And I was like, I was like, thank you for letting me know and thanks for the opportunity. And I immediately hung up with her and I called Antoine. I said, Antoine, you got traded. To <laughs> and that was that is such that a great be- story. But he goes, he goes on, Hawk, as you know, because you were there talking about how they'd set up roots in Washington and they, you know, family members had gotten jobs and everybody had, we, we don't expect these bad things or these transitions to happen. And how do you see people recover from these? How have you seen through your interviews, people find a way with all of these life changes to still make it work? The athletes in general are, are resilient. And those are some of the kind of attributes that do translate to other other points in their lives. Um, and that even for people who aren't athletes, like that resiliency, being able to lean into the transition, understanding that, okay, this isn't ideal, but typically anything, any change, any transition, any growth, like it's never going to feel good. It's never going to be ideal. And for a lot of the athletes that I talk to, the ones who kind of embrace that are the ones who see it as an opportunity. The ones who resist to the death are the ones where it changes their life for the worst, right? And uh, if you look at Quran's story, he'll talk about it like, wasn't happy with it, started to embrace the change. And on this side of it, he looks back and he looks at all the, the connections he's made in different cities, how he can go to all these places and he's got incredible opportunities that were given to him just on the basis of him going and playing at a city, meeting the right person at the right time to where he started looking for the opportunities in it. He got to L.A. and he would basically go to the games early to shake everybody's hand at courtside and sit and talk with them. And they to this day call this man to bring him on lucrative deals just for the fact that, hey, I remember how did, how you treated me when you were on top yeah. and you're somebody I always want to be around. But but I know I mean I'm talking to the choir. I mean you're from Pennsylvania. You see pre- plenty of factories close, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah exactly. When, when a factory closes, going to the next opportunity and having that that inspiration, I think is is an important thing for people. Yeah, no, absolutely, man. You know, I see a lot of people. Like I have a, I have a, a friend who was working for a company forever, and I, you know, he was like hitting incredible numbers, and he was wasn't making a lot on the salary front. And I'm like, dude, you're an incredible salesman. I don't know if you know that or not, but they pay top dollar. For incredible salesmen at other places. But then, you know, he was kind of stuck in that comfortability of like, hey, I don't know what's out there. I don't change. And it wasn't until they laid him off that he started to work on his own. And he's now making like 5x what he was making there. He's like, oh, I see what you mean. I'm like, yeah, so think about how long you prolong that and almost having to be forced out of your situation for you to flourish or kind of start to look within yourself and say, man, this is what I'm good at. How can I monetize this? in the best way possible. The show is called Branching Out. I found it right now on the Kneading Dough, the podcast iTunes feed. Is it going to stay there or is it also going to be a Branching Out feed separately, Hawk? For, for this season of it, um, and we have five of them coming up this season, it's going to stay on the Kneading Dough franchise because it's kind of a mini series under that. Yeah. Um, but who knows what it'll grow into. You know, like I said, the, the reviews early on have been incredible, but this is the best of both worlds for our listener. You get to hear Kneading Dough with Maverick, who is a mogul right now. And also, you know, when you want to hear branching out and hear from a different perspective, you get me as well. Yeah, you've got uh, he's talking to LeBron James, uh, Serena Williams. You know, nobody listens to the show, so you don't have to worry about disclosing <laughs> anything important here. But but who's coming up that you maybe can't tell us about? Um, we have a lot of people coming up. We got a, a certain big name tight end coming up on the Needing Dough franchise who is 
a smarter guy than people realize. And he'll tell us about all the financial mistakes he's made and some of the ones he's cashed in on. And then on the branching out front, we're, we're still working through. We have a, an executive, one of the hottest Hollywood executives who people don't realize started off as an NFL athlete, oh, working for one of the hottest production companies in Hollywood. So exciting stuff to look forward to. That's so awesome. We'll link to the show, everybody. If you're walking the dog or you're on your commute on our show notes page at stackingbenjamins.com. Hawk, thanks for hanging out with us for a few minutes. I appreciate it. Awesome, man. I appreciate you having me. And uh, anytime you have me back, just let me know. there fans i'm joe's mom's neighbor doug and please don't go girl because it is time for me to welcome you to the cover girl for this amazing show my trivia i don't know if you know this but all podcasts long step by step i've been slyly slipping in new kids on the block song titles throughout the show what you gonna do about it well at this point i need you to put on your thinking cap because it's time to get serious about the new kids theme question When New Kids on the Block first appeared, the band's manager, Maurice Starr, called them Nyuk. While Nyuk is the name of the dog in the movie The Lost Boys, Nyuk was also an expression frequently used by what comedy team that performed from 1922 until 1970? I'll be back with that answer in just a moment. Well, I've known throughout my career that having quality people represent my company goes a long, long way, which is why I can never figure out why people don't take the hiring process more seriously. I've seen so many bad companies get better just by paying attention to the hiring process. So when it's time to make a hire for your small business, naturally, you want to find the best person for the job so that everything goes easier. And odds are that person's already on LinkedIn. LinkedIn Jobs makes it easy to get matched with quality candidates who make the most sense for your role. LinkedIn Jobs uses knowledge of both hard skills and soft skills to match you with the people who fit your role the best. And because people already come to LinkedIn every day to learn and advance their careers, LinkedIn understands what they're already interested in looking for, which means when you use LinkedIn Jobs to hire someone, your matches are based on so much more than just a resume. How many of you have been burned by just looking at a resume? If you're hiring people, I know you're not. I know you're nodding your head because I certainly have. I'm like, oh, your resume looks great. I think we should hire you. And then that person, uh, for the next six months, I spend so much time trying to figure out how I can either rehabilitate them or make sure they don't impact our team too negatively. It can be absolutely horrible. Your LinkedIn jobs matches are based on skills and backgrounds like you'll see in a resume, but also on interest, activities, and passions. Customers rate LinkedIn jobs number one in discovering quality job opportunities. Post a job today at linkedin.com slash SB, and guess what's going to happen? You're going to get $50 off your first job post. Bam, you're welcome. That's linkedin.com slash SB. Terms and conditions apply. Hey there, 80s baby. Tonight, I'm step-by-step going to be hanging tough with the answer to this NKOB trivia segment because today is the new Kids on the Block day. What the hell? How did they get their own day and I haven't yet? I don't know. I don't make the rules. Trust me, if it were my choice, every day would be Nickelback Day. But 
whatever. Let's see if you've got the right stuff. The question was this. When New Kids on the Block first appeared, the band's manager, Maurice Starr, called them Nyuk. While Nyuk is the name of the dog in the movie The Lost Boys, Nyuk was also an expression frequently used by what comedy team that performed from 1922 until 1970? The answer? While nobody ever got a straight answer from Starr about exactly what his specific reference was to, if you knew Maurice the way I did, you would know you never got a straight answer out of him. But anyway, the term yuck was often used by three guys named Larry, Curly, and Moe, the Three Stooges. Get it right? Well, you're hanging tough. And in the words of the new kids, I'll be loving you forever. See ya! Hey, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline and tackle some of life's most important questions, OG. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency put what you value first, OG. Ooh, it's leftover peeps and those Cadbury mini eggs. Did you have one of the Dunkin' Donuts uh, peeps flavored coffee? What do you think? Yes. Like five. God, no. No? I don't put anything in my coffee, dude. Coffee flavored coffee. I'm like Dennis Leary. Did you ever listen to the coffee flavored coffee bit from Dennis Leary? We played that. Yeah, that's me, dude. I don't, I don't put sugar, cream. It was maple syrup in my? Oh yeah, man, that's maple nut crunch. Like no, none of that stuff goes in my coffee. I got hazelnut one time. I threw it out the but window. It was so nasty. Peeps, peeps though, and coffee together. They don't go together. Two great tastes. Wrong. I can't imagine. Our friend Chris over at Popcorn Finance had an Instagram uh, story about um, about going to buy one of those. He said it just tastes like coffee with a ton of sugar in it. Like just a, well, yeah. What do you think a peep is? That's all it was. Molded sugar. That's all. It was so. It was so funny. It's actually your loved ones in your time, and probably hanging out with loved ones, eating peeps and Cadbury eggs. Good time. I'm not sure what that does for your life insurance needs, but it's why they've made buying quality term life insurance actually simple. Their application has been streamlined so you can get through it quickly. It's online so you get an instant coverage decision. Their prices are affordable. Of course, they're backed by their parent company, Mass Mutual, more than 60, more than 160. I just said 60. Yeah, how about a 160-year-old insurer? You don't have to wait several weeks for a decision. Here's where you go to get a free quick quote, stackybedjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now to get a to get that quote. After our second headline today, oh gee, I hope there's a rush of people going out to get their get their second quote. All those things that could go wrong. One thing that went right though is this. We got a call from our new friend Drew. Throwing out the lifeline to you, Drew. Say hi. Hi, Joe and OG. I have a question about my student loan debt. I currently owe about $240,000. I'm three years out of school with a doctorate degree. I'm the primary breadwinner in my family, and I'm a small business owner. I currently live in a fixer-upper that I own with just a little bit of car debt. My wife and I made about $130,000 this past year. I'm in the pay-as-you-earn repayment plan, which is 10% of your discretionary income. For 20 years, then your loans get forgiven and you get taxed on everything that was forgiven. My friend who is a financial advisor doesn't trust that the government will end up forgiving anyone's loans as a bunch of his teacher buddies 
just got screwed over on the public service loan forgiveness front. Should I keep up with my plan on investing as much as possible and banking that they get forgiven at the end of 20 years? Or should I start paying 3000 a month towards them for the next 10 years? Thank you. Hmm. Income-based repayment plans. OG. And wondering where that's, that's going to go. You know what's funny is that I had a CPA I worked with for a while, incredibly competent, who said that she didn't trust the Roth IRA. I remember back in the day. because yeah, It'll of, never stick. Because of the fact, well, because of the fact that the government can, can say, oh, um, uh, you know what? We are going to tax that money again. Sorry, but we're only going to tax it a little on the way out. We just need a little more. Well, you know, on the Roth IRA front, I often wonder whether or not they'll make changes to it. I don't think that they would ever change, you know, change it backwards, but I bet you they could change it, you know, in the future, just kind of stop it or something. But uh, that's a different topic. You know, I found on this student loan forgiveness thing, quite often the error has less to do with the government and more to do with the person applying for the forgiveness in that they didn't follow the very precise written guidelines for the last decade in which to qualify. And when you say very precise, you mean very, 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 very precise. Well, it's obnoxious. Like you have to send in forms every year to get, you know, stuff recertified that you're doing it correctly and all this other sort of jazz. So I agree that the G could have made it a lot easier, but they didn't because they don't want people to take it, take advantage of it. So whether or not it's around in 20 years is a whole nother discussion. I don't, I mean, nobody can predict whether that's going to be around. If you get on track for your financial goals and you have extra money, I would pay the debt off. I mean, that's just how I am because I, I don't want to wait around for 20 years and be freaking 60 years old, then find out that, oh crap, I still have a quarter million dollars of student loans because the chickens come home to roost at social security time. You know, if you still owe the government when you go to collect Social Security, they just take that. <laughs> you know, I mean, you could wait that long, too, I guess. But but you can kind of do a little bit of both where you could say, I'm going to accumulate money in an outside investment so that if in 20 years from now it's still not paid for, I can just cut a check and be done with it. Obviously, the risk is the accumulated interest over that period of time and that sort of stuff. But as your income continues to increase and you say, okay, you know, my financial goals are on track. I'm on track for my retirement. I'm on track for my kid's college fund because please don't let your kids graduate with a quarter million dollars of student loan debt also. Then you still have money. You know, personally, I wouldn't want to like wait two decades to get this taken care of. I mean, kind of you went into it eyes wide open knowing I'm going to graduate from school with this debt so that I can have this degree. So pay it off. But if it's, if there's something to take advantage of on the back end, take advantage of it. You know I mean? Like there's nothing wrong with following the rules as they're written, but the downside of it blowing up or you not filing the form correctly in year 13 and it blows your whole plan up, whatever, like that's a risk. And I don't want to wait until I'm 20 years down the line to find out that I screwed it up in year 12 or something like I want the money. I want it gone. That's just me personally. 
With regard to programs changing in general, here's what we've seen from the the federal government most times is that you get grandfathered in. Like if you follow all the rules and they decide to change the rule, they change it as of X day and they grandfather you in. That didn't happen in at least one instance that I know of. Uh, Back in the 80s, there were some oil and gas limited partnerships where they just changed it and everybody was left holding the bag. So can it happen? Is there precedent? Yes. Has it happened often? Absolutely not. That That they change the rule and don't grandfather you in. That's why I think, OG, I like your advice the best. Uh, Don't count on what somebody else is going to do. I mean, whether it's the government or somebody else, you can control what you can control and and, um, find a way to make it go away. I like the part where you said you like my advice the best. Yeah. Well, that's because it agrees with my thinking, which is the best. So in this case, it was pretty Wait, hold on. So it's your idea that was the best? It was my idea that was the best. But we didn't know that until now. Right. Okay. Well, I got it. I'm following. That's because I'm gracious and I let you talk first. Okay. Thanks for the question, Drew. If you've got a question for the show, head to uh, stackingbenjamins.com. You'll see at the top of the page questions for the show. Click that link and uh, that'll lead you to all the ways you can interface with the show. That's going to do it for today. Hey, if you need good financial planning help in your corner, OG and his team are taking clients. So the first step on that journey is to do stackybedjamins.com forward slash OG to set a time to talk about exactly how you would interface with them. That's going to do it for today. Doug, take it from here, man. What should we have learned today? Yuck, 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 yuck. Sure thing, Joe. I got it. So what should we have learned today? First, take some advice from Andrew Hawk Hawkins. If life deals you to another team and things don't seem to be going your way, focus on the opportunity, not the problem. While there will always be changes, the path to winning is all about how you handle change. Second, thinking about trading an initial public offering, take a second look and double check that you're trading the right stock. (laughs) (laughs) It was hilarious. Anyway, better than that, maybe do a little homework to see if the stock even meets the needs of your portfolio. But the big lesson? Don't tell Joe's mom it's new kids on the block day. That woman is baking pies to take to our new neighbors. Wait, there isn't a new kid on our block? They're a band? From the 90s. (laughs) Okay, too new for you? Well, they're like the Statler brothers, but but younger. Special thanks to Andrew Hawk Hawkins for stopping by the basement. You'll catch his branching out podcast on the kneading dough feed in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. This show was created by Joe Saul produced by Richie Rutter Reese and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart online. Visit us on Twitter at at S Benjamin's cast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I'm a lot deeper than you realize. In fact, sometimes I just stand in front of my mirror and reflect. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remuneration. There's no way you would take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only, and before making any financial moves, consult with a real financial advisor. Thanks also to Joe's mom for baking the new kids on the block some pies. I just realized maybe she needs a volunteer to take the pies to the new kids. 
I got it, Mom! Can you pack a fork with the pies, though? You know, just, just in case they don't have any. And just to see who's still paying attention at this part of the show, drop us a line and let us know exactly how many New Kids on the Block song references we had in this episode. I went to see a movie last week that I I saw was playing at the theater down the street from us. I hadn't heard anything about it. It's this film called The Mustang. You've been in isolation. What do you think about that? I'm not good with people. Dad. Why are you here? I just need you to sign this. How long have you been in prison? Twelve years. And how long from the thought of the crime to the actual crime? Split second. That's a dangerous animal. If you can stay in there for more than five seconds, you're in the program. Nice boost. The whole purpose is to learn how to break these wild horses. And ultimately, our rehabilitation. You ready? I stepped into an avalanche. So this movie, uh, Robert Redford is the executive producer. It's about a prison program that apparently happens in prisons in states across the western part of the United States. Uh, the story is completely fictional, but these programs exist on government land across the West. There are wild horses and to keep population control in check. One of the moves that the federal government does is they round up some of them and they have inmates train these horses and then they sell the horses at an auction to police forces or other interested parties. And so there's this guy who, as you heard at the beginning of that clip, has been incredibly angry, been in prison for 12 years. When he committed his crime, he said it was a split second between the anger he felt and doing it. And you find out what the crime is that that he did. I've never seen any of these actors before except Bruce Dern. Of course, he was the star, one of the stars of one of my favorite movies of all time, Nebraska, from just a few years ago, 2013. This film surprised me. Because it was so, so incredibly good. In a couple places, it is way violent. I mean, this is not a sugar-coated, saccharine, feel-good movie. I can't tell you what happens at the end, whether it's good or bad, because I think that gives up half of the grittiness of the movie. But, man, Cheryl and I talked about this movie, like different pieces of this movie for a few days afterward. And I'm just surprised for that reason that I haven't, I haven't heard more 
more about it. So uh, the Mustang, I I would call this a, in my brain, it's a must-see movie. A must-see. Must-see. My favorite movie since, you know, I look at movies for people new to the show from Oscars to Oscars. So there's a lot of movies I saw this year that I consider to be last year movies. But of this year's crop of movies since the Oscars, that's the one. That is the best movie I've seen so far this year and, and is easily going to be in the top five movies that I'll uh, that I'll see this year, if past years are any indicator. Once again, I'll say it. People joke about this on our Facebook page. I don't know if you you saw this in the Facebook group. The number of times I look right across the table at you and I say, dude, you'd like this movie. And you go. I might watch this one. <laughs> you look at me and go, uh-huh. You actually, instead of giving me the old uh-huh, yeah, where I know you're not going to watch it in a million years, you you actually, your interest kind of perked up. Mm, some violence, a prison. How many explosions? Horses. <laughs> the thing is, is like, I have such a rigid schedule when it comes to like my bedtime <laughs> that I just have no time to watch movies unless no, I'm on an airplane. I can, I can see though, and from the discussions we've had lately, this is the best place to get OG because you're in flipping panic mode. You're in, if I see this on the American Airlines menu, I'm going to jump. Cause, cause, Hooray! Because now you've seen everything else. I, it's that or Alpha. Because right. now you're down to nothing. I finally got you to the point where you're going to listen to my review just because of the huge number of flights you have to take. I'm actually on the ground, thank God, for another month, and then it picks back up again. I'm actually, I'm actually going to be uh, flying before you, then. So I've got three weeks. Good stuff. Uh, the Mustang, not good stuff. Great stuff. The Mustang. Nice job, Robert Redford and uh, company. Well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month, and I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law Eric who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans. And all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website. Resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.